listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. All right, Mick, so just kind of a follow-up. The last time uh, you and I got together, we talked quite a bit about in-season nutrients. And and this next topic is really kind of along that same lines. We're, we're going to go away from soil fertility a little bit. I'm sure we'll bring soil fertility into it. But you and I have both been involved in high-yield contests a little bit. Yes. seen some things that have worked, seen some things maybe that haven't worked. Sometimes you don't know the difference when you try them. Let's talk a little bit through... Um, Things you do differently when you're really pursuing yield. And, and most of the time when I talk to a grower, um, I don't recommend this going across all their acres. You know, pick an area, right? Exactly. You know, you think and you, and you look at Hula's raising 600 bushel corn. And do you think he's doing that on a 80-acre field? Is he doing it on a quarter section of ground now i mean those are smaller fields they're highly intensively managed Uh, these things in order for us to push yields it's a high management situation yeah and that management starts the year before or multiple or multiple years before Uh, you the ones you've worked with it took a while to get there right and it doesn't happen overnight it's a management situation it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of investment to get there right yeah you're when you talk to a grower about raising ultra high yield you're not walking into a weedy field you're not walking into rough ground you're not walking into a poor stand right generally you're going to be talking to a guy who's at the upper end of the growers that you're working with because he's already proven that he can get to a really good level he's going to have embraced technology I mean, I've, I've, I've got to have yield maps. I really need some history of yield, and I need it across multiple crops, multiple years, multiple weather situations. Let's go find an area that's consistently yielding really well. Now, maybe that's a whole field, generally an 80 or less. You know, when we're tra- talking contests, it's in that 10 to 15-acre range. Right. He's also doing intensive soil sampling, uh, He may take a grid sample from a two and a half acre grid to an acre grid or an acre and a half grid also. I mean, this guy, when you're doing this, you are taking it two notches from where you you were before. Right. And that's why when you talk to a grower about it who who wants to embrace it, you kind of got to start the conversation out. Okay, where are you at now? What are your yield levels, number one? And they need to be on the high end of what I'm hearing. Or, you know, probably we've got some base things we need to take care of. Maybe we're three years out for really shooting for the moon. Um, but if a guy's already getting really high levels, now let's walk through all the things we've talked about on this show. You know, soil fertility, um, splitting up your nutrient application, a really good nitrogen program. You know, we haven't talked as much about it, but great weed control. You know, if you got great disease control, a scouting program, all those things. You know, good hybrid selection. Does your population make sense for what you're shooting for? All those things. But Tim, you're leaving out the planner. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, are you getting a really good stand or not? I think we, we overlook that a lot of times in ag is, is the importance of getting that stand out, stand establishment. And let's face it, you know, years ago when, when we were younger, if you got every plant out of the ground in a 72-hour period, that was good. Then we come come back and 
Now we're looking at 24 to 48 hours. Uh, to me, 12 hours. And if you look at those ultra high yield guys, they're wanting them out within an hour. I mean, that that's a huge thing to happen is to get every plant to emerge within an hour. I It's hard to do, but you've got to have the right planter set up. You have to have that planter to establish your base. Yeah. You know, we can't add, we can't add yield once that plant plants in the ground. No, you're absolutely right. And you're a better equipment guy than I am, but you don't have to be an equipment guy and understand what's wrong to go out there and look at a stand and say, I've got missing plants. I've got doubled up plants. I've got emergence. It's all over the board here. Those things are pretty easy to figure out. It, it kind of goes back to rowing, right? It, it, well, number one, you need to be in the field. Exactly. So it's not driving by the field. You're in the field. And you need to be in the field checking the planter out to make sure it's performing. You need to be in the field as that crop's emerging, rowing that crop out, making sure it looks like you're getting what you're expecting. You need to be in that field again around that V3, V4. You're checking for pests. It's, it's really good scouting and a scorecard of how you're doing with the planter, with planting, that what you're seeing is what you're expecting to see in multiple years of that, frankly. Yes, it is. And we don't dial in a planter in one pass, right. unfortunately. Right. I'd love to be able to do that, but I might change the planter settings three or four times in the field. And you want to do that somewhere before you get into that area that you're really trying to hit the exactly. home run with. Yeah. Exactly. So when we talk about making that really high yield in corn, um, you know, the things I want to talk with, with the grower about, number one, depend on your area, what's your population? You can't be planting 20,000 seeds and expect to make 350 bushel corn. You'd have to have one hell of a flex ear, right? Big ear. <laughs> we don't see very many 1,000 seed ears out there. Start with that. And so you really should be on the high end of the population for the area you're in. Um, you know, we're here in eastern Nebraska. I would want a conversation to start somewhere around 36,000 is kind of the minimum. Maybe that conversation goes all the way up to 45, 50,000. Tim, you're, you're making guys cringe now. That's a lot of money. I'm making me cringe just worrying about that thing falling over. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you hit 50,000, that stock looks like maybe your index finger. It is a very small stock for way late into the growing season. You're getting to a point where you're maybe three inches, four inches apart in your plants. Um, it's close, it's tight. And so, you know, of course, one thing we got to talk but about you're, is... you're not putting a, a 700 kernel ear on that either. No, no, if I'm you, getting 500. If I'm you're getting happy. 500, that, that's the thing is if, as we crowd these plants closer together, we're going to shorten up that ear a little bit. Uh, you know, you walk a 24,000, 27,000 population field in Nebraska and then you go to Ames, Iowa and you walk a 38,000, the ears don't look that impressive, but there's a hell of a lot more ears out there. That's exactly right. The other thing you have to think a little bit about is row spacing, of course. So I say 50,000, you know, that's really absolutely the outside edge. Well, that's in 30 inch rows. Now, if you're planting corn in 20 inch rows, and that's not quite as ridiculous, but you... You see where the grower is. You don't want to make too big of a jump going forward, but generally, as you chase yield, you're chasing population. Yes, you are. You have to be. 
And you brought up the next piece. So the next piece is that ear size. What kernel number are you looking for? And it kind of comes back down to math. Now, with population, if you're getting close to 10 bushels per thousand plants, so you're planting 30,000 bushel, you should have the opportunity to make 300 bushel corn there. 35,000 plants, potentially, as long as you've got a hybrid that can make that big of an ear, you've got the potential for 350 bushel corn. I like to stay a little under that number, to be honest with you, but as I get closer to that number, then I'm definitely telling the grower it's time to push population. Ear size. I'm thinking normally if I'm at a high population, I'm looking in that range of 500 kernels. If I'm at a lower population, that probably needs to be closer to 700 kernels per year. Consistency is a key. Yes. Uh, you know, consistency fills that combine faster than anything. And if we're... If we have ear sizes bouncing up and down based off of poor planting that we did earlier, then our consistency isn't there. That combine's not going to fill as fast. That's one of your biggest challenges right there. You push population up. And, and so here's another thing. When we talk about standing, I've been in some great yielding corn, and I'm talking 300-plus bushel of corn. But frankly, when I looked at that stand back in late April, early May, it didn't look very good. They were yellow. There, were, you know, some plants weren't quite up yet, and other plants were already getting a good leaf out there. Um, as we push planting date up, chasing yield, sometimes that works counter to having a great stand. So sometimes you give up a little stand, chasing a longer growing season and making maybe a a longer um, season hybrid work. By planting in, gosh, March, very early April. So you, you make some compromises and you, and you roll the dice a little bit. Right. Whereas if you'd waited till May, then, you know, you probably would have had a little bit better looking stand in, healthier looking plants coming out, just running with it right out of the gun. But eh, sometimes you make some decisions that are counter to that. But you do see the penalty when you get later in the season and you see those nubbin ears or no ear, you got a barren plant, or you got something with, you know, 250, 300 kernels when you're averaging 550. You know, and, and when you're doing that rolling of the dice and, and you're putting that plant out there and, and you're putting it stand at risk, then you have to manage to, to keep every ear and every plant healthy. Where if you have that good, consistent stand... You don't have to manage that as hard. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to high population, too. With a really high population, I can take a few more dings and still come out all right. If I if I go out there and I got 40,000 plants that are still producing an ear, I can have one ear that just doesn't look all that good or maybe a little bit more tip back. And that's another thing. If you're pushing population, don't get all excited that you got a little more tip back than you expected. You're probably going you're to force it. You're going that. to have it. It's yeah. going to be forced. The third piece, and to me, I think sometimes this is the one that we overlook the most, kernel size and weight. You know, when I'm out there, and it, you know, as an agronomist, you know, you, you learn that, uh, well, in a bushel of corn, seed corn, there's 90,000 kernels. Well, in a bushel of field corn, that's probably should be more like 80,000 kernels. Well, when I started working with some of these high yield growers and we get out there and, and I do my counts, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, this is pretty good. This is probably 240 bushel of corn. Well, we'd harvest it. It's 280 bushel of corn. It's 290 bushel of corn. Well, the kernels are a lot larger than that 80,000 kernels per bushel. You know, we might be more like 70,000 or 65,000. It's not test weight necessarily. It's kernel it's size kernel. and weight. It is kernel weight. And, you know... 
Uh, you're opening the door to a tangent of mine. Uh-oh. And I'll bring you back if it goes too long. Test weight is not a measure of weight at all. It's a measure of density of how tightly that starch is packed inside that kernel. Yeah. And test weight and yield do not correlate. Yep. And a lot of people say, well, I got good test weight corn, so it's going to be great corn. Well, not necessarily. It's all how that starch is packed in that kernel. So uh, kernel weight is what we're selling yeah. out of that field is kernel weight. And those larger kernels produce more kernel weight. Sometimes really high stress environment corn that ends up with a, a thick um, outer share, shell, a, a thick pericarp on that kernel, that is much denser than the starch in there, or, or the starch is tightly packed, but it's going to be horrible as far as the weight of the kernel itself. Popcorn is, is very high test weight. Right, right. But, but tiny that's a very kernel. small kernel exactly. that's packing all that starch into it. So back to that kernel size and weight, you know, we talked in a previous episode about the things that we try to do with in-season fertility. Here to me is where building great soil fertility and supplying some nutrients in-season to make sure as that thing's trying to fill out that kernel that it's never short, that's where that philosophy really shines. You know, the guys that are pushing those high, high yields, they're doing multiple tissue samples through the season. They're watching. They have spent years building up to the soil fertility levels that they're at. And unfortunately, we can't control what's going on in that soil environment all the time. Uh, Mother Nature controls that, and we may have a cold snap where those roots aren't reacting as fast as they are, starting to see some nutrient deficiencies in that plant so they can help establish that or maintain that yield goal as they're going through with some nutrients. Yeah, I wish I had all the little bugs in the soil figured out, but I don't. So when they're going to release the nutrients that they tend to tie up, whether that's nitrogen or sulfur or phosphorus or a micronutrient, if I'm in doubt and I'm really chasing yield, I'm going to put something on. And it doesn't have to be large amounts. All I'm trying to do is supplement what Mother Nature's doing. It has It's generally going to be much less when I'm going to pull out of there with the grain truck. But I'm going to put something down so while that plant is finishing out its vegetation, it's a really large plant, it's taking up a lot of nutrients, or it's filling out a kernel, I got nutrients there when it needs it. Now, another thing I would talk about when you're talking about ultra-high yield is I'd talk about fungicide. And then I'd talk about fungicide again, and I might talk about fungicide a third time. You're going to minimum of two applications. Uh, you're gonna, you want to keep that plant healthy, you want to have that plant never have a bad day. Uh, you and I, neither one of us can go for a week without having a bad day. Right, right. Especially if I have to come do a recording with you. Let's let's take a <laughs> corn plant and try to go whole growing season without a bad day. Exactly. Now, late season plant health is huge when it comes to keeping that plant green. So it's almost a little bit counterintuitive. You plant a higher population, you got interplant competition, you got less light getting down in the canopy. You think, oh, those lower leaves, they're not that important. When you look at really high yielding corn, it's generally green all the way to the ground. If it's senescent leaf, it might be senescent one way down there, but most everything's still photosynthesizing. You want to keep every drop of sunlight you can. And just because you don't see light directly hitting the soil, and again, you're out there. I mean, that's a key to making high yield corn is you're out there, you're out there at least every week. Again, soil and plant tissue tests, if nothing else. 
it doesn't just have to be lights hitting the ground. There's a lot of light in that canopy, even without seeing light directly hitting the soil. It, it's not dark. You don't need a flashlight. You're walking around. There's light. So there's light lower in that canopy. It can photosynthesize. For somebody that's colorblind to even notice that, it's, it's a good day. <laughs> There's nothing I like more than to walk into a cornfield with a high population. It's a hot, humid day, and it's like a tropical forest in there. Other than I don't see a lot of disease symptoms on the plant because we're doing a good job protecting that yield of fungicide. But it's it's just green as a gourd from, from top to bottom, and it's really producing sugars, and it's filling kernels. And that's really what you're looking for. And a field that I'm in like that looks like that, usually when we come back to harvest, it's going to look pretty good. That, that's going to be the key is that plant health all the way through and all the way down throughout the canopy. And it's a combination of having the nutrients there for the plant so it's not senescent leaves because it's run out of nitrogen and trying to move them up through the plant off old leaves. you got plenty of it out there. It doesn't need to move it around. Leave it down there in the lower plant, lower plant canopy. Let it continue to photosynthesize down there. Have plenty for that new growth, um, green top to bottom, and fungicide to keep the disease pressure from from uh, giving it any additional problems. Because you want as much leaf area as you can get. They're smaller already, right? The leaves are smaller because you got a high population going on, so that that's an issue. And then the other one with the fungicides, of course, is that uh, effect on slowing plant metabolism at night. You you got to think about the respiration. Mm -hmm. You've got more plants out there. Right. They've got more carbon dioxide exchange for that 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 has to occur. So if we got a healthy environment for them, that can occur a lot easier. Right. And we want it to slow down. Uh, Tim, I've been around you when you've lacked sleep, and you're you're worthless when you don't <laughs> normally, but even more worthless than when you lack sleep and. And even that corn plant has to rest. Yeah. And being able to take a deep breath overnight is what is the corn's way of resting. The other way I like to put it is a plant photosynthesizes. It makes its own food. It makes sugars. And it's got one of two things it can do with those sugars. Well, three things it can do with those sugars. It can add additional plant growth. But frankly, when we get past tassel with corn, it's not going to do that. It's now going to focus on making grain. So now it's only got two things it can do with those sugars. It can respire them with metabolism at night, especially when it's not photosynthesizing, or it can shove them into additional kernels or fill in the kernels it's already got. If we can slow a little bit of that nighttime respiration, it's got a better chance of throwing that sugar into those kernels. It's kind of like you and I. If we eat a lot, we're going to get fat, unless we go exercise a whole bunch. Well, if I want to get fat, quit running, quit riding the bicycle, back off on all that exercise, sit on my butt, eat some more Cheetos, watch TV, and I don't have to spend energy that's going to burn calories off. Same with a plant. Don't spend energy that's going to burn sugars off. Exactly. So when we talk about that tissue testing, you know, you and I have both done a lot of tissue testing over the years. I like probably weekly if I'm really trying to chase yield, and then I respond when I can. If you got a pivot, you can respond easier. If you got the budget for airplanes, you can respond more. But I need to be thinking about it for my herbicide pass. I need to be think, thinking about it for my fungicide pass. If I can make one more pass out there with something, let's make sure we've got current tissue tests to make decisions off of. Right. Uh, you know, tissue sampling is a snapshot in time. If you're doing it every week, you've got a snapshot from every week. If you're doing it bi-weekly, it's every other week. Uh, however you want to do that 
nobody said that raising high yield corn was cheap or easy. Right. And if you really want to push that, you're going to be out there every week. Right. And then you can react a little bit quicker. Yep. And the value of those tissue samples does not end with black layer. Come back, look at them, and decide, okay, I, I made these reactions in season. Here's the feedback the plant gave me on whether or not that worked. What am I going to do next year? And maybe I'm going to make soil applied application this fall or in the spring to try to get ahead of whatever I was seeing in those tissue samples. Or maybe I'm going to kind of look at the timing of when I was having problems and make an application a little before that next year. You know, when we look at, at tissue samples on a regular basis, uh, zinc and boron always seem to be deficient generally. And I mean, that's a general statement. Uh, we're not going to get enough zinc foliar for those all to cover the needs of that plant for that whole season right uh, so we need to react if our boron in a high yield environment shows that we're short and we're doing everything right ahead of it then maybe we do a soil applied boron uh, earlier before that corn plant would need it yeah yeah i don't know if i've ever told you this before but when i'm hungry i don't apply peanut butter to my arms so yeah. Exactly. The main needs of the plant need to be soil applied. The tissue test helps you understand maybe what you're lacking. You can make some of those additions through foliar, but the majority probably should be soil based. You know, if I need iron in my diet, I don't lick a wrench. Right. I'll eat a steak. Yeah, exactly. So we've come to a time we should probably do a break here. Let's do a little uh, funny farm story. So uh, I believe you have one this week, Tim. Yeah, I've got something here. So years ago, my uncle picked up a different piece of ground and it had an old barn on it. And he got up in that barn and was kind of checking things out in the loft. And while he was up there, a badger showed up down at the bottom of the, uh, the ladder that you got up into the hayloft from. And he's sitting there thinking, well, now what am I going to do? This badger's running around down there and he kind of yelled at it and it didn't move along. So I don't know, for whatever reason, the badger thought that place was his and my uncle didn't belong there. I so, think the badger probably owned the barn first. I think the badger was there first. So there's an old fence post up there. And he comes up with the bright idea that he's going to drop this fence post on the badger and kill it. Which, if you've ever killed a badger, they don't kill easy. They don't die easy. They seem to resist the process. So he grabs his post, wait for the badger to kind of get under him, and drops some post on the badger. <laughs> Needless to say, it doesn't kill the badger, but the badger's now really pissed. <laughs> so that badger's just going ballistic, trying to get up the little ladder. Of course, he can't climb. Anyway, it's rooting around down there, and it's got my uncle treed for like three hours. This is before cell phones, so he just can't call somebody up to come shoot the badger. Two, three hours later, the badger finally gets bored of him and walks off, and he can finally come back down out of that hayloft and get back in the pickup and go home and call us and tell us his story. But if you ever cross paths with a badger in a field or wherever, which I have, generally it's best to let them have whatever way they want. And if you decide you are actually going to take the badger on, do it with a firearm, not a fence post. Exactly, Tim. <laughs> the further you are away from that badger when you shoot him or whatever you try to do to him, the better. Because being up close, the odds are definitely in the badger's favor. Badgers are kind of like I am. Don't irritate them. Exactly. I'll give you that one. <laughs> Kicking them's a bad idea. Kicking a badger <laughs> would be a bad idea. <laughs> 
All right, so we covered corn pretty well. Let's talk a little bit about soybeans. How do you think about soybeans differently as you try to chase, you know, that yield contest kind of numbers? You know, soybeans are, are interesting, Tim, and, and getting them to respond uh, doesn't always work the way it does with corn. And consistent responses are, are even more difficult. Uh, you know, we push population in, in corn. A lot of the guys that are pushing on, on soybeans are backing off population, causing those uh, plants to branch out more. Variety selection in soybeans got to be number one. You know, you want a bushy bean. You want something that's going to branch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, do we go out and stress it and cause it to branch? Uh, I think a year, year and a half ago, I had you out there uh, counting some pods on the soybean plant that had gotten damaged and, and had branched out and had 130-some pods per plant. If yeah. we could figure out exactly what happened to that plant and recreate that year in and year out, that's the key. That's one case where it's really not all that different from corn. If you want a county winter, you know, corn ear, we'll just kick over the plant on either side of it, and it does really good. Soybean, same way. You get one damaged, and it tries to bounce out two different growing points and becomes a bush, it'll have a lot of beans on it. But it's tough to do that for an entire field, and it's tough to always be successful with that. When you pull population back, and I'm kind of a fan in eastern Nebraska of a population somewhere around 150,000. You start going to a population of 100,000, you can get yield record beans there, but you can also get a mess. Things don't go your way and you don't have the population to fill in. Not only do you have problems getting decent yield, your weed control is a disaster for the rest of the growing season. You just set yourself up for three years of trying to clean that field up. But the flip side is some guys make some really good yield off 90 and 100,000 population beans. And I, it's got to be a grower who's already gone that direction a little bit, and I'm confident in everything in their program before I'd ever steer them to back off that much. 150 is kind of where I like to be, and you got to give me reasons to go different than that. I like 140 because the math's easier. There you go. Put a unit out per acre. Now, fertility... I like fertility, and I think high-yielding beans like good fertility, especially phosphorus. They're going to need fertility. Um, beans are a P and K hog. Yep. They're going to need P and K for sure. Uh, sulfur makes sense because what is sulfur is a building block of protein. Uh, beans are a protein crop. Uh, fungicide. Once again, we're talking fungicide, but keeping that plant healthy, keeping it green. Uh, if we get into a high yield situation, I've never worked with beans on high yield situation, but if I were to start down that path, I would probably have two fungicide apps. Yeah. The other thing I'd throw in there is uh, when I go to the micronutrients on beans for corn, I'm thinking zinc, number one. For beans, I'm probably t- thinking manganese, number one. And then I would probably also think about, uh, I want that, I never want to weed in that field either. Right. And herbicide program and that's a prerequisite i mean you don't go into a a weedy field from last year trying to take record soybeans you go into a field that you've built into being clean because really the less i can stress that plant from her from herbicides once i get to flowering the better or close to flowering the better i you know a decent pre-program but you know the less chemicals that plant has to metabolize the happier i am generally 
Although we've seen some guys hit beans with some burner herbicides early and they come back and branch out a little bit more than they normally would and they do really well. You know, I would agree with that, Tim, but getting a consistent response and I haven't figured out that timing yet. Yeah, I know the university one time went over them, uh, I think they mowed them, used a weed eater on them and sprayed them with Cobra, different different plots, trying to get additional yield out. Of course, it didn't work. You know, you've got to have a system put together that you've been working on for years before adding something like that to intentionally stress it into branching more is going to work for you, in my opinion. I don't like to go there. And if I did go there, it's going to be a small area. Very small area. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about corn, we've talked about soybeans. Mick, I know you've got some experience on wheat. What do you do different with wheat? Uh, wheat, just like the other two, it's it's all management issues. Uh, you're going to push population just like you do corn. You're going to limit your end that goes out in the fall when you plant that wheat. And you're going to be three to four passes of in with your, with your bar, with your stream bar, in fungicide yep. at least twice, and then a late-in application at flag leaf. Is there a tillering level you're looking for in the fall as you try to pursue high-yield wheat? So at, at green up, we adjust nitrogen. We would adjust nitrogen based off of tiller counts. Yep. And once again, that's an intensive right. thing. You're, you may not be in that bean field or bean field. You may not be in that wheat field from, say, December to mid-January, but once that comes out of dormancy and starts screening up, you're in it every week, maybe multiple times, right. trying to make those decisions. Right. I think you know the consistent thing we see with all three crops is, number one, fertility. Base fertility, good fertility, so you've got a great base to build off of. Number two, high management. A lot of time out in those fields, like you mentioned as we started with corn, your your planter needs to be doing what you want it to do and not doing things you don't want it to do. You know, it, corn's probably more sensitive than anything else as far as doubled up um, kernels or skips or anything like that. Beans can fill in a little bit. Starter fertilizer on any of them is a must. Yep. Uh, you know, I look at when I've worked with wheat growers, we're pushing the limits of amount of salt we're putting on because we're doing it with a dry and we're putting things in the fur in furrow with that wheat seed that we probably wouldn't new normally do in a production practice. Right. And you probably think a little bit about experimenting with some biologicals. Yes. Um, sometimes trying to get that plant to do things that you're not trying to do in a full field environment for really pushing yield and it's a great place to do experiments i mean that's one thing i like about guys that push some of these high yield plots it's their own research and development for their own farm but yeah the the, the biologicals that might you know as you push population like in corn and you've got a lot more interplant uh, competition you know maybe using something like a mycorrhiza fungi to try to extend that root system beyond what the plant itself has um, some similar things in wheat uh, definitely, and you know, and uh, another thing in wheat that you worry about is the height of that crop. Right. Uh, lodging in wheat is a, right. is a real issue, and when you get that head up there, the taller you get it. Uh, you know, unfortunately, in our, in this country, we don't have uh, growth suppressors that right. we can utilize legally. Right. Um, that shorten that plant. Yep. Up. 
you know, a little bit. But. And that might be one reason that the records for weed are out in Great Britain and Australia yes. and not necessarily the Because they're shortening those yeah. plants up and, and keeping them upright. I mean, you think of a of wheat straw and how thick that that base of that plant is. It's not very thick and to hold a, right. a big head up with a lot of berries on it, it's difficult. Right. You know, back to soybeans a little bit, one thing we didn't talk about, we talked about nitrogen and corn and nitrogen and wheat, nitrogen and soybeans. A lot of guys really chasing yield to bring up nitrogen and soybeans. I've had varied responses, nitrogen and soybean. It's not necessarily one of the things I'm pushing to grow toward first. Responses to nitrogen on soybeans is really, it's like rolling the dice. Mm -hmm. Some, sometimes you're going to get a great response, the next time you're going to see no response. Uh, you know, in a 10-year period, you're probably going to see enough response to pay for the nitrogen if you use 30 pounds a year uh, late through the pivot. Ideally, uh, you're going to probably pay for that nitrogen based off the advantages you see over a 10-year period. But it's not, I haven't seen consistency. Right. Now, if you've got a pivot and it's easy to deliver, that probably makes sense. And again, if you're really chasing yield, it's probably something you should experiment with. But like corn... Late season plant health, especially as it's trying to fill out those bean pods, makes a lot of sense. That's a combination of fertility, fungicides, optimal weed control, picking good area, good drainage, and, and irrigation management if you got irrigation. We didn't spend a lot of time on that, but a, a soil moisture probe probably makes a lot of sense if you're really looking at chasing you know, yield. When you're pushing those high yields, it doesn't matter what crop it is, you want the moisture to be correct every All the time. day. Right, not too yeah. much, not too little, yeah. just right. What ideally you have a small area that's tile drained and irrigated yep. both and yep. and then you can manage your water and keep it right where you want it. There's a reason that a lot of the tile systems that are going in now have got a control valve on them. So we can use that to manage moisture, not just drain it away. Exactly. Yep. You know, Tim, one thing we didn't touch on is harvest. Uh, sure. With soybeans, you can't push early harvest. Uh, you're, you're waiting for that crop to dry down. Wheat is, is the same thing. But when we're looking at high-yield environments on, on corn, I want to harvest as early as possible. I agree. 27 moisture corn coming out uh, is not a, not a bad thing. Yes, we have drying costs, but if you're pushing for that yield, you need to get it early. Right. And a lot of that goes back to... Uh, a thing that in our industry we call phantom yield loss. Somewhere between 30 moisture and 15 moisture, we get a yield deduction, and I've tried to figure out where that is and what happens in that time frame. I can't figure it out. But that phantom yield loss is real. Right. We just can't explain why. Black layer does not mean the kernel is dead, otherwise it wouldn't germinate the next year when you put it in the ground. So if that thing is still alive and still may be respiring, especially in warmer weather, good opportunity we're burning up carbons and kicking them off as carbon dioxide. So, exactly. Yeah, put it through the dryer, dry it down, get her weighed, get her sold. That's right. All right, with Mick Godekin, I'm Tim Mundorf, and this has been Soil Talk. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our Agronomy Focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.